0: I'm David Kasher, a rabbi at IKAR in Los Angeles, and together we're going to study the weekly Torah portion of the Parsha and figure out why the Torah really is the best book ever. Hey everyone, here's a hot tip from this week's Parsha. Don't eat bats. You hear that? No bats. Not good for you. Really, Torah? Do you really think I need to be told not to fry up some bats for dinner? I mean, a bacon cheeseburger, granted, that really does sound delicious. But I think I could have handled avoiding bats all on my own. But then again, I'm told bats are a delicacy in some cultures. So hey, maybe if it weren't for the Torah, I'd be eating a big bowl of bat stew right now. Which brings us to the question, and it's an old one. What exactly is the point of all these kosher laws? This week's Parsha, out of nowhere, introduces a long list of forbidden animals, with not much more of an explanation than that they are tame, which we usually translate as impure. Well, we've been dealing with the laws of the priests in the temple and the priests do have to stay pure to do their work, so Maybe there's some connection there, but that's not good enough because these restrictions apply to all of Israel, not just the priests. Indeed, keeping kosher went on to become one of the most central Jewish practices. Everyone knows Jews have a thing about pork, right? But why? Well, there's some classic answers, but none of them are totally satisfying. For Maimonides, the rationalist, it's all about health. Pork contains more moisture than necessary and too much superfluous matter, he says in his Guide to the Perplexed. The main reason the Torah forbids swine's flesh is the fact that its habits and its food are dirty and disgusting. Well, Maimonides was a physician, so he certainly knew something about healthy living. But the idea of Kashrut as God's healthy diet plan is a little suspect because there are plenty of unhealthy kosher foods. Has anyone ever had kishka? That would be beef intestines stuffed with flour and fat. And in fact, most of the commentators were quite critical of the attempt to turn the kosher system into a health plan. They suggested instead that keeping kosher was not for your body, but for your soul. So the Abarbanel, for example, writes, The Torah is not concerned with physical therapy, but our spiritual well-being. It therefore forbade food which debases the purity of the soul, the intellect, the human temperament and character, while promoting an unclean spirit, defiling man's thoughts and deeds, and expelling the pure and hallowed spirit of man. Goodness, to think a tiny little shrimp can do all of that. But the truth is, the Torah itself doesn't say anything about either the health of the body or the purity of character that will result from a kosher diet. And of course, that leads us to a much simpler answer. Why keep kosher? Because God said so, that's why. The Talmud in Masechet Yoma famously distinguishes between mishpatim, commandments that appeal to human reason and seem intuitively moral, like don't kill people and hukim commandments that are incomprehensible and can even seem ridiculous but we just do them because we believe in God and the Torah and that's what God said to do and so that's that and the very first thing the Talmud lists in that second category is not eating pork so the reason for keeping kosher according to the Talmud is there's no reason just do it all right do it for God So I'm thinking about these options, keeping kosher for the body or for the soul or for God. As I'm thumbing through the list of animal no-nos here in our Parsha, when suddenly I came across a letter that ended up opening a whole new theory of kashrut for me, one that's much more tied up into the narrative of the Torah itself. Now, you just heard me right. I said it was a letter that took me down this path not a sentence or a word but one little letter one big letter actually because in the calligraphic writing of the torah scroll there's a very cool tradition one that we've mentioned before on this podcast that some specific letters are written larger or smaller than normal and there are 16 of them altogether. And actually, the first letter of the Torah is one of them. You might miss that one because you think it's just a stylized opening letter like lots of books have at the beginning of a chapter. But eventually, we run into big letters even in the middle of words. And there's one of those right here in our Parsha. Here in this verse in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 42, that tells you not to eat, lotochlum anything that crawls on its belly call holech al gachon now the big letter in the original is in the hebrew word there for belly gachon and it's the vav the third letter that has been rendered extra large so in my little copy of the torah there's an asterisk and i look down and there's a note that says that this vav actually marks the middle point of letters in the Torah. The Talmud in Kiddushin says that. Okay, so that's sort of a cool Torah factoid. But actually, it turns out people have counted up all the letters of the Torah, and it's not exactly a true factoid. This letter is near the middle, that's true. It's about 5,000 letters away, and there are 304,805 letters in the Torah, so it's close to the middle, but not exactly the middle. So, there are various attempts to reconcile the rabbinic discrepancy here. Were they counting differently? Did they have a different tradition of letters? Did they just get it wrong, God forbid? But, I'm staring at the word, and I'm also thinking, huh, belly. Belly is such an odd random word for for a significant marking point here. And it isn't the word for human belly, beten. It's anything that crawls on its gachon. And then I look down at Rashi who says, This is a snake, Zenachash. Well, sure, that makes sense. It crawls on its belly. Not too many things do that. That, that sounds right. But then That gets me thinking the middle point in the Torah is a reference to a snake. That's interesting because way back in the beginning of the Torah, we had a story about a snake. And then I think, wait a minute, that word. And I go back to Genesis and there it is in the curse that the snake receives from God for enticing Adam and Eve. God says, more cursed will you be than all the other animals of the field? On your belly shall you crawl. Al gachoncha telech. And dirt you shall eat all the days of your life. Boom. Gachon here, gachon there. In fact, these are the only two usages of that word in the whole Torah. Jackpot, my friends. We have a connection. And then it occurs to me that maybe the rabbis of the Talmud were saying that the large vav here was the halfway point in the Torah, not exactly, but that it rests in a word that marks a good rough halfway marking point. Precisely because that word embedded here in the kosher laws, that word takes us all the way back to the beginning, to the very first story. And you know what? That story was also about people who were not supposed to eat something. But back there, in the Garden of Eden, they ate it anyway. So it's almost like the Torah is saying, okay, it's halftime. Let's huddle up here and do a little check-in. Now that I've started to give you all these laws, it's it's a good time to remind you that the very first time I ever gave anyone instructions, they were eating instructions also, and they were ignored. And so, the act of following these kosher laws not eating what you're not supposed to eat will be an opportunity to make up for eating what you weren't supposed to eat back then. So I wonder, has anyone else thought of this? I go look it up. The Torah Shlema, A big collection of Midrashim organized by verse and written by my great namesake, the 20th century rabbi, Menachem Mendel Kasher, has three listings on our word with the big letter. The first two from the Talmud both just about the letter being the halfway point in the Torah that we've seen. And then the third source taken from, get this, the Midrash of big letters, Midrash Otiot Kdolot, says this. The Vav, whose numerical value is six because it's the sixth letter of the alphabet. The Vav of Gachon is big for every snake was cursed with six curses. Hey, there it is. A subtle reference to the Garden of Eden story, to exactly the place where the snake is cursed. So I'm not the only one who made this connection. But... So far, we're only talking about snakes. So then I wondered if there was any tradition, any source that linked all of the kosher laws to that original don't eat story. Well, I found one. It's in the Midrash Tanchuma, and it does a beautiful job of weaving together the story in the Garden of Eden with the kosher laws here in Leviticus. Tafas HaKadosh Baruch Hu kol min vamin The Holy Blessed One picked up every single species and showed each one to Moses and said, this one you can eat, this one you can't. As it says here in Leviticus, these are the creatures you can eat and these you cannot eat. And if this seems strange to you, that the Holy Blessed One would pass these things in front of Moses, well, so too did the Holy One pass all of the creatures before Adam and said to him, what is this one's name? And Adam said, bull. And what is this one's name? And Adam said, camel. And then donkey. And so too with every single thing, vchen kol davar vedavar. So there is in this vision, a way that this new system of keeping kosher makes reference to our very first encounter with the animal kingdom. Our consciousness around what we eat brings us back into nature then and sets us in recognition of and relation to all the other living creatures with whom we share the world. Keeping kosher in this paradigm is about harnessing some primal awareness of the animals and our earliest moments of connection to them. That's not all. The Midrash continues with one final naming. After Adam gave all the animals names, the Holy Blessed One said, Va'ani, ma'shmi. And me, what is my name? And Adam said, Hashem, the name of God. Which is why the verse in Isaiah says, Ani Hashem, Hushmi. I am God, it is my name. It is my name because that is what the first person called me. Keeping kosher isn't just about recognizing our relationship to other creatures. It's also about remembering our relationship to God. A relationship so intimate, so delicate, that once upon a time we were in direct dialogue and we were asked by God to give God a name. And because we gave it, That's the name God wants to be known by. And yet, this Midrash imagines, it was just after we gave God this name, achieved that level of intimacy, that we broke a trust with God. The relationship became damaged. And so, if keeping kosher is meant to atone for the things we weren't supposed to eat way back when, then it's also meant, symbolically, to heal our broken relationship with God. If that is so, then keeping kosher is not for our physical health or our self-perfection. Of the classic explanations, this one is most like the Talmuds because we do it for God. But this version isn't about proving our loyalty to God by submitting obediently to the divine command. This is about being in intimate relationship with God. A relationship so close, so familiar, That whenever we sit down to eat a meal, we call out the name of the Holy One and invite God to join us at our table. Best Book Ever was produced by Ben Cooley and edited by Vera Blossom. And our theme song is Pete by Hillel Tigay. You can listen to more of his beautiful music on iTunes and Spotify. And while you're there, why not subscribe to Best Book Ever if you haven't already? If you're interested in supporting this podcast and our work, you can visit us at org and donate or Venmo us at ecarla. That's I-K-A-R-L-A. Thanks a lot and see you next week.